What did Martin Luther King Jr. have in common with Richard Nixon and with 18th century revolutionary Thomas Paine, author of Common Sense? Well, all three thought it was common sense to guarantee to every citizen who breathes a set amount of cash every year, essentially as a right, and firstly to protect against poverty. Nowadays, that idea is flying high again. And in fact, it's being tried out in places like Finland and Canada and Kenya, And some are saying it is time to try it here in the United States. A universal basic income, a UBI, of, say, $10,000 per American per year with no strings attached. And is that a good thing? Is it the answer to some future predicted doomsday where robots will be crushing human employment? Will it give people room to pursue passions and not just a paycheck? Or is it wrongheaded? and even dangerous to start telling people, don't worry so much about work anymore, the UBI will take care of you. Well, all of that sounds to us like the makings of a debate, so let's have it. Yes or no to this statement, the universal basic income is the safety net of the future. A debate from Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan, and I stand between two teams of two experts in the topic who will argue for and against the motion. As always, our debate will go in three rounds, and then our audience here at the Kaufman Music Center in New York City will choose the winner. And if all goes well, civil discourse will win too. Our motion is this. The universal basic income is the safety net of the future. First, let's welcome the team arguing for the motion. Please welcome first Charles Murray. And hi, Charles. Welcome. Welcome, Charles. Tell us who your partner is. Uh, My partner is Andy Stern. Ladies and gentlemen, Andy Stern. So I... We do have a strange bedfellows pairing on this side. Charles Murray is a libertarian-leaning political scientist at the American Enterprise Institute. Andrew Stern, for 14 years, was president of the Service Employees International Union, the country's second largest union. So you have a conservative academic. You have a liberal union man. Can you each tell me how this is going to work between the two of you? Charles, why don't you go first? It's going to work great. I, I met Andy at a panel we were on together last August. And about 15 minutes in, I said, I like this guy. (laughs) <laughs> and how about you, Andy? John, I think you should never underestimate the power of a transformational idea. So it brought you together. Ladies and gentlemen, the team arguing for the motion. That motion again, the universal basic income is the safety net of the future. We have two debaters arguing against it. First, let's welcome Jared Bernstein. Thank you. Thank you. Jared, welcome back. Your second debate with us. Uh, you're a senior fellow at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. Before that, you were Vice President Biden's economic advisor. Um, you are also Charles Murray's, your opponent's, frequent sparring partner. You have debated over the UBI in the past. And among all of the issues, all of the many issues that the two of you disagree on, does the UBI make it to the top of the list? Well, that's a long list. Uh, <laughs> But uh, UBI would be at the top. It's an idea that sounds benign, and while I wish I could like it, my fear is that it puts economically vulnerable people seriously at risk. Okay, so we see where you're going. And can you tell us who your partner is? My partner and my friend is Jason Furman. Ladies and gentlemen, Jason Furman. Hi, Jason. And uh, you were chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors, where you served as President Obama's chief economist. Um, The Washington Post has described you as the White House's wonkiest wonk. 
they even tracked down your old college roommate, and your college roommate said that when he met you, he was so intimidated, he literally almost turned around and went home. <laughs> Who was your college roommate? Matt Damon. <laughs> so did Charles and Andy need to be scared as well as Matt Damon was scared? I should be using this time to set expectations well, but instead I'll use it to note that um, Matt did not graduate from Harvard. (laughs) Yeah, and yet somehow it worked out. The team arguing against the motion, ladies and gentlemen. So I want to let you know you have already voted on the motion as you came in before hearing the arguments. The motion, the universal basic income, is the safety net of the future. At the end of the evening, after you've heard all the arguments, we'll have you vote a second time uh, to see whether any of the debaters have persuaded you to change your minds or move from one side to the other. And the way we declare victory is we give victory to the team whose numbers have moved up the most in percentage points between the first and the second vote. I want to be clear. It's the difference between the first and the second vote that determines victory for our debaters. Let's begin with round one. Round one are opening statements by each debater in turn. The motion is the universal basic income is the safety net of the future. Here to argue in support of the motion first, Andrew Stern, a senior fellow at the Economic Security Project and former president of the Service Employees International Union. Ladies and gentlemen, Andrew Stern. Thanks, John. Maybe a little irony to start. Until three years ago, I had never even heard of a universal basic income. And tonight, my opponents are my progressive friends, while my partner, Charles, is often my ideological nemesis. So let me explain how I came to see the power of a universal basic income, offer a specific proposal, proposal, while Charles discusses its role in restoring choice and responsibility, making it clear why a yes vote is really the only viable choice. At 22, my first real job was a welfare worker, determining eligibility for President Nixon's welfare programs. If you had a problem as a client, I had a regulation and a hoop you could jump through. I had no idea that two years earlier, the same President Nixon, with Milton Friedman's assistance, had proposed a far more radical safety net, a guaranteed income that would be worth over $10,000 for each person today. Friedman explained, we should replace the ragbag of specific welfare programs with a single comprehensive program of income supplements in cash and do more efficiently and humanely what our present system does so inefficiently and inhumanely. John Kenneth Galbraith and a thousand other economists echoed Friedman. They wrote, the answer to poverty is pretty clear. Everyone should be guaranteed a decent basic income. And only a year earlier, Martin Luther King had condemned President Johnson's piecemeal approach to the war on poverty, saying, I'm now convinced that the simplest approach will prove to be the most effective. The solution to poverty is to abolish it directly by the guaranteed income. He said the dignity of the individual will flourish when decisions concerning his life are in his own hands. With so many people living in poverty, despite over 100 cash transfer programs, and the inhumanity of today's bureaucracy would be reason enough to institute a basic income as the new safety net. But there are two more even compelling reasons. First, despite all the touted job growth and low unemployment rates, November's election was a shocking 
warning that the 21st century has gotten off economically to a really bad start. 47% of Americans couldn't find $400 for an unexpected expense. Nearly half are stuck in jobs that make less than $15 an hour. 40% perform unstable contingent work. A 30-year-old's chances of earning more than their parents are down 40%, and the number of people engaged in any paid employment is at the lowest level in decades. A mere 34% of Americans feel financially secure. The rest feel this is the United States of anxiety. So secondly, a universal basic income in this new age of insecurity could be both a shock absorber and a supplement to work. Finally, accelerating technology may create the greatest disruption to jobs in history. An Obama administration report said 83% of the jobs paying less than $20 an hour, one-third of the jobs paying $40 an hour, that's $80,000 a year, are going to be impacted. Oxford University, 47% of all American jobs will be lost. McKinsey, 45% of all tasks can be automated. And add to this chorus of disruptive technology the voices of the World Bank, the ILO, Joe Stiglitz, Elon Musk, Robert Reich, and Robin Chase. The first major disruption may actually be self-driving trucks, the largest job in 29 states, employing over 7 million people. Some may argue that we are the... Charles and I, the new 21st century Luddites, but as the chair of the Bank of England makes clear, every technological revolution, every single one, mercilessly destroys jobs well before the new ones emerge. So how could a basic income work after a possible phase-in? I propose that every citizen 18 to 64 would have electronically deposited into their account $1,000 a month. That's $12,000 a year. No strings attached. It's that simple. According to government statistics, that $12,000 ends poverty for the first time for 43 million people. It would allow entrepreneurs to start a business, women to escape domestic violence, or finally be compensated for their caregiving jobs. Workers could be retrained or not accept poorly paid or irregularly scheduled work. Students could pay for books and fees while prisoners could survive once released. And if these payments only go to citizens 18 to 64 and seniors receiving less than $1,000 a month in Social Security, then by a combination of eliminating current welfare programs, not all but some, eliminating tax expenditures, not all but some, not health care or not disability benefits, and then we add new revenue, whether it be a border, a VAT, a carbon, or even Bill Gates' robot tax, and claw back the money from people at higher incomes, we can afford to do this in America. A universal basic income is supported across the political ideologies because it's efficient and flexible and humane and can end poverty once and for all. It promotes choice and freedom and offers security for the first time both now and during the upcoming disruptive technological challenges we will face. A universal basic income is the safety net of the future, and I urge you to vote yes. Thanks. Thank you, Andrew Stern. And that is the motion, the universal basic income is the safety net of the future. And here to make his opening statement against the motion, Jason, you can make your way to the lectern, Jason Furman, a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics and former chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors during the Obama administration. Ladies and gentlemen, Jason Furman. Thank you. 
Um, so it's terrific to be here today, and I'm particularly pleased to be in dialogue and debate with people who, especially in Andy's case, um, I very much share their goals, and I share much of their diagnosis of the problem. I don't want to be here as the defender of the status quo, to tell you everything's perfect in our economy, or that all of our public programs are working. Certainly we need improvements. Certainly we need reforms. The argument that Jared and I are going to make is that universal basic income is based on a faulty premise, would take us in the wrong direction, and would make many of the problems that Andy is so rightly worried about even worse. Let me begin with the premise. Much of the premise for universal basic income is the notion that robots will take all of our jobs and that if we can't be employed, that we'll need something else, some money from the government to take care of us. People have thought this for a really long time. In the 19th century, 70% of our population worked on farms making the food that we needed to eat. If you had told them that 150 years later, almost all of them would not need to work on the farms, and that less than 2% of our population could feed us, they would have wondered where all the jobs could come from. Today, machines do 90% of what workers could do 100 years ago, and yet the unemployment rate is a little bit below 5%, just like the unemployment rate was in the year 1900. Switzerland has a much higher employment rate than Italy. That isn't because there's lots of robots in Italy doing everyone's job, and Switzerland people build the cuckoo clocks by hand. As people get richer, it creates new jobs that you never could have imagined in the 19th century. It makes people want to spend more and support even more jobs. And consistently, people have said, just around the corner, there's going to be a disruption. And yet, we're currently in the longest streak of job creation that we've ever seen in this country's history. Second, regardless of your views on this question of the future of work, the numbers in UBI proposals tend to sound really, really attractive. They just have one downside. They violate the laws of arithmetic. Do not accept this idea unless you understand what the trade-offs are. It's really quite simple. If you give somebody a dollar, that dollar has to come from somewhere. It has to come from cutting benefits that someone is getting or raising taxes on someone. Now, maybe we'll hear a little bit about all the bureaucracy that, elim- that administers all these programs, but you could get rid of all that bureaucracy for unemployment insurance, food stamps, housing vouchers, and the like, and only have $150 per person for UBI. So if you want $10,000, you need to find the other $9,850. To put some scales on these proposals, Andy's proposal that he just outlined will cost about $1.8 trillion. Charles has a proposal that's a bit different that would also cost about $1.8 trillion. That's twice what we spend on Social Security, our largest government program right now. That is more than we collect in income taxes every year. 
So you would have to double your income taxes. You would have to eliminate Social Security twice. Or, if you're not touching Social Security, take all of the income support programs. There's 300 billion of them a year. You can't pay for $1.8 trillion for $300 billion a year. So if you are tempted to support this motion, make sure you understand who the losers are. Because you're redistributing money, that creates an equal number of winners as it does losers. Because it's just a dollar from here needs to come from there. In most of the proposals, the losers tend to be households with more children, lose, get a cut relative to a household without children, because today we support you based on your number of children. Or older households, in Charles's plan, a 90-year-old, would lose relative to a 45-year-old who would gain. Or somebody who's unemployed, which is something we support quite strongly now with unemployment insurance, would lose, and somebody who is employed and went to college would gain. Or somebody who makes $90,000 a year would win. They would get a better deal than they get today. And somebody who makes $30,000 a year would lose. Again, these details can change. We're going to hear this isn't true because of that. That's not true because of that. But unless you've heard who's winning, who's losing, and you understand the rationale for it, you shouldn't support the motion. The final thing I would say is we do need changes in our programs. We need to build on what works. We need to end what doesn't work. And in particular, we need to support and encourage work because while there will be jobs in the future, I don't think it's automatic that people can get them. And helping connect people to jobs, helping them work, helping fulfill their meaning and get an income is the most important thing for us to do. Thank you. Thank you, Jason. And a reminder of what's going on, we are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two teams of two, fighting it out over this motion. The universal basic income is the safety net of the future. You've heard from the first two opening speakers, and now on to the third, debating for the motion, Charles Murray, the W.H. Brady Scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. Ladies and gentlemen, Charles Murray. I'm going to engage along with Andy during the discussion period of a lot of the issues that Jason just raised, but I want to spend my time talking about some of the things that would be accomplished if we had a universal basic income. If we've learned anything over the last couple of years, and especially in 2016, it is that the working class in this country has a lot of problems. They are not just in urban areas. They're not limited to any one race. They're all over the country. And these problems are ones that I think a UBI can deal with as the current system cannot possibly deal with them. And I want to start out with the example of people who are doing everything right but are low income. Let's say we're talking about a married couple with children. Uh, They're near the minimum wage. Let's say they each bring in $14,000 a year. That's uh, $28,000 for the two of them. They're good parents. They are good neighbors but they're also just scraping by. Under the current system, do they get any welfare benefits? Yeah, they do. But at $28,000, a lot of those have been phased out, and also depends where you live in the country is what the other benefits are, and a lot of those benefits are in-kind benefits as opposed to cash. In the case of Andy's plan, which, by the way, for purposes of this debate, 
We're going with Andy's plan. Both of us are. In terms of Andy's plan, this couple now has $52,000 per year cash. That means that they are no longer having to rent a place which has Section 8 housing. They can go out and buy a, a, rent an apartment anywhere they want to that they can afford. It means that they are not giving out food stamps to the cashier at the grocery store. They're pulling cash out of their pocket. It means that they are not supplicating the welfare bureaucracy to please enroll them in this program and please don't kick them off that program. They are able to have a qualitatively different life in material terms, yes, but also in terms of the independence and options, they are moving toward basically a, a approaching a middle-class income. There are millions of such people in this country. They deserve to have that kind of life. We can afford to give it to them, and just doing that alone would be great. Now let me sort of go to the other extreme and the ways in which a universal basic income gives moral agency whether people want it or not. Let's think of a, of a guy who is your complete screw-up. He drinks too much, he can't hold on to a job, and he runs out of uh, money be- 10 days before the end of the month. Well, under the UBI, he can no longer plead helplessness. His friends and his relatives can say to him, as they cannot say now, okay, we aren't going to let you starve, but you've got to get to your act together and don't tell us there's nothing you can do about it because we know you've got 1000 bucks hitting your bank account next month. You've got to, you've got to start uh, dealing with your problems. That's good. That kind of interaction multiplied millions of times around the country is having friends and relatives deal with human needs in ways that bureaucracies inherently are unable to deal with them. You have a situation whereby... A guy who uh, is living with his girlfriend is suddenly told when the UBI is in effect, he's got to start paying part of the rent. Well, that's good for him, and it's good for her. You have other guys who have fathered children and walked away from them, and we really can't do much about it now with our child support laws because a guy can say, I don't have any money. Well, under the UBI, guess what? That money is deducted by court order before he ever sees it as it goes into the account. Uh, That's good for the child. That's good for the mother, and that's good for the guy, and it's really good for all the guy's friends who take notice of what's going on. But I don't want to go too far with uh, getting people to shape up, giving people moral agency because they do, in fact, have resources and can take on responsibility. I really want to focus and, and elaborate in the rest of the debate on all the ways in which the UBI gives people options. So let's go back to marriage again. You have the guy making $14,000 a year. He wants to marry his girlfriend. Getting married with that little money is a problem. Now with the UBI, they will have a family income of $39,000. If I've 39, 38, I have to add it up. Uh, Even if the wife does not work at all. That makes marriage a possibility in a way it wasn't before. Or think of a woman who's married to a guy, and they, they have a joint income, they both work, and they're at sixty or $70,000 a year. They're middle class, but she can't afford to do what she wants to do when she has a baby, which is to, to spend a couple of years with the baby. An awful lot of affluent women on the Upper West Side of New York who can make that choice and who have careers choose to stay at home with our children, which is good for the child, it's good for the mother, it's good for the dad, it's good for everybody, it's good for the community. Well, let's give middle-class women the kind of economic buffer whereby they can do the same thing. In all of these ways, 
we have possibilities with the universal basic income of augmenting incomes by dollar amounts, yes, but what we are really augmenting is options. We are augmenting dignity. We are augmenting independence. We are augmenting human flourishing. I hope you will agree these are goals that not only deserve our economic support, but our enthusiastic moral support. Thank you. Thank you, Charles Murray. And that motion again, the universal basic income is the safety net of the future. And here making his opening statement against the motion, Jared Bernstein, a senior fellow at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, former chief economist to Vice President Joe Biden. Ladies and gentlemen, Jared Bernstein. Thank you. Thank you. So Jason started uh, somewhere around 1800. I'm going to start uh, by taking you back just about a decade ago when uh, the two of us were working for a new historic presidential administration. That was very exciting. In the midst of the worst economic downturn since the Great Depression, that part was horrifying. These days, in a fact that poses a challenge to our opponent's end-of-work hypothesis, we're adding an average of 200,000 jobs per month. But back then, we were shedding 700,000 jobs per month, over 2 million jobs lost in the first quarter. And why am I telling you about this? Because that recession threw 14 million additional people uh, into poverty. 14 million people ended up poor. That's 5.5 million more people who live, than live in, in New York City. This was between 2007 and, and 2010. But, and here's the first point I want to impart to you. Once you account for the anti-poverty programs, programs that lifted their income, their wages, that provided them with extra nutrition, with housing, and with health care, the number of poor remained essentially flat. Even amidst the worst recession, I hope, of any of our lifetimes, once you account for these interventions, poverty was essentially unchanged, even in the midst of the Great Recession. Now, the reason I'm underscoring this is because if our opponents' UBI proposals had been in place, this would not have occurred. And that's for one of two reasons. Either the resources that we're now using to support anti-poverty programs would be diluted, as in Charles's plan, that's the universal part, or if you envision that we're somehow going to provide people with the UBI on top of what we're now providing for them, you run head-on into the constraints that Jason raised. You know, the, the idea that uh, you'd be spending the full uh, amount of what our tax uh, system already collects every year. The tax system needed to support a program that keeps the current safety net in place and builds a, a UBI on top of that is not one we should consider realistic, even in the context of this debate, where I think we usefully suspend political disbelief to have a discussion in the age of Trump when conservatives are falling all over each other to cut taxes on rich people and cut spending for poor people. Resource constraints exist, even in that world. And a dollar going to someone who doesn't really need it is a dollar that isn't going to someone who really does. Now, of course, UBI supporters from the right argue that the help that we're providing to poor and elderly people today doesn't work. From Ronald Reagan to Paul Ryan, they say, we fought a war on poverty and poverty won. Charles writes in his book, quote, The welfare state produces its own destruction. But these claims are false. Back when Reagan first made that claim, the safety net lifted 4% of the poor out of poverty. Today, it lifts 
40%, more than 40% out of poverty, a tenfold increase. Today, our anti-poverty programs, which UBI uh, proposals, both uh, those of Andy and Charles, would wholly or partially end, lift 40 million people out of poverty, including 8 million kids and 18 million elderly persons. And in a deep and important contradiction to this claim of the welfare system self-destructing, we now have long-term research that shows that uh, for children who benefit from poverty reduction, the benefits are long-lasting. Poverty reduction that UBI would, I fear, undermine. Kids who get nutritional support were less likely to be obese, to have heart disease, to drop out of high school compared to kids who didn't. The Medicaid expansion uh, was also, uh, kids who benefited from the Medicaid expansion were less likely to drop out and more likely to finish college. A dollar spent on early childhood education results in roughly $8.60 of benefits to society, about half of which comes from increased earnings for children when they grow up. Now, those who know my work, and I hope some of you do, uh, know that I spend a lot more time thinking about ways to improve this system I'm describing to you than I do touting and defending it. After all, even with all uh, of the poverty reduction I've described, poverty rates are far too high. So my work typically focuses on expanding the earned income tax credit and nutritional support. I'd seriously boost these upward mobility enhancers like quality preschool for little kids and college access for big kids. I'd make sure that unemployment insurance helps people longer, especially in places that get especially hard hit in recessions. I wouldn't guarantee everybody a basic income. I'd guarantee low and moderate income people a job. But if we instead choose to use our resources on people who don't need them, we won't be able to build on the progress we've made. Again, I understand and appreciate the usefulness of, uh, of, of, of constraining political reality for this debate, but let me end my initial comments by relaxing that constraint because there's little point in totally abstracting from reality. You know, Bob Greenstein, a poverty expert with whom I work, said, any possibility of overcoming the obstacles to UBI will require a left-right coalition that has significant conservative report, support, and conservative support for UBI rests on, approach, on an approach that will increase poverty rather than reduce it. I just don't see how you implement the program, some aspects of which I like, that our opponents are touting without seriously hurting the poor. There's no way to add a program closer to Andy's, as he recognizes, without seriously raising taxes. And I've been in D.C. for almost 30 years, and not have, uh, only have I seen total unified resistance to tax increases among Republicans, I've seen too many Democrats buy into that as well. Unless our nation's politics radically change, I'm sure the answer is the worst-case scenario. A, U, a UBI may well hurt the people who need help the most. Thank you. Thank you, Jared Bernstein. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is the universal basic income is the safety net of the future. And now we move on to round two. And in round two, the debaters address one another directly as they answer questions from me and from you, our live audience in New York. The motion is this, the universal basic income is the safety net of the future. The team arguing for the motion, Andy Stern and Charles Murray, have argued that the working class and extensively the middle class is in trouble, that jobs are dying, incomes are dying. 
and that with the predictive future for artificial intelligence, work itself may become obsolete, throwing potentially tens of millions of people out of work in the lifetimes of people who are here with us now. They argue that the universal basic income is a floor that would work as a hedge against, not only as a hedge against poverty, but would also allow for the dignity of people who are otherwise suffocating for oxygen to survive financially. They make the further argument that there's a social good that the UBI would augment options, that it would augment independence, that it would remove excuses for irresponsible behavior. But their bottom line is options, options, options would come with the UBI. The team arguing for the motion, Jason Furman and Jared Bernstein, first of all, they make clear that they are not defending the status quo. They don't think everything's perfect as it is. They do think that reforms are needed. However, they are simply not as pessimistic as their opponents either about the future of jobs or about the performance of anti-poverty programs already in place. They say that the prediction of a doomsday scenario for obsolete labor is way oversold. Surrender is being made prematurely to the notion of giving up on helping people find jobs by paying them not to work or paying them because they can't work, to be more precise. They do not want to rally around the idea of helping people uh, uh, get by without trying to help them continue to find work. And bottom line, they say that their opponent's plan just doesn't work because the math does not add up. There's a lot here, and I want to separate some of this into different parts, and I want to ask the debaters as we go forward. I'd like to enforce conversations around different aspects of this, so not to bleed into the other points you want to make, because I will attempt to get to them. But the first one I want to get to is just the basic presumption that the team arguing for the motion is making, uh, the presumption that at a very accelerated rate, jobs are dying, that work is changing, that, as I said, human labor will become obsolete, possibly in the lifetimes of people uh, who are alive with us today. So I think we're talking 20 to 30 years from now uh, at the outside. And I want to go to your opponents to respond to that first. And you did someone in your opening statement. Why challenged so so vociferously, uh, Jason Furman, this notion that things really, really are changing quickly, that this time it is different? Somebody wrote a book, um, a guy, Martin Ford, a few years ago called Rise of the Robots that made this prediction. The Wall Street Journal in 1960, had an article with the headline, The Robots Rise, that made exactly the same prediction 55 years ago. People have been predicting this for a really long time. There is no evidence for it in the data. The fraction of the population that works varies a lot across countries and across times, but it depends on economic circumstances and what you're doing to help prepare people for jobs and succeed in jobs, not on the number of robots you have. So rather than treating this as inevitable and declaring surrendering to the robots, we should be figuring out how people can succeed, thrive, and work in an era when, yes, we hopefully will have more robots doing more of the things that they're better at than humans, freeing us up for other, even better jobs. Okay, Andy Stern, your opponent just used the word inevitable saying it's not inevitable, but you're, you're, you're almost on the pretty darn sure it's inevitable side of the argument. I, I'm certainly at the point that to ignore the possibility and not plan for it would be a critical mistake for our country. You know, the problem with economists are they try to predict the future by looking at data from the past, and I think we just had an election where people used a lot of data from the past and kind of missed the point 
because things actually do change in this world. And there was a headline one time that Donald Trump would be president, you know, and everybody laughed at that as well, and now we have him as president of the United States. So, so let's not say because the data once happened or it will never happen again. Let's look at this. Elon Musk, Bill Gates, Stephen Hawkins, people that are creating the future all will tell you this is an event that will occur within the next 20 years. Not obsolescence, and it's not just robots. It's software that's enabled globalization. It's autonomous vehicles that allow for self-driving trucks. It's the Amazon new checkout, which is like EasyPass, where you walk out the door and all the things are accounted for. The, the studies by Boston Consulting, the World Bank, the ILO, you know, the European Union, all say there will be a massive disruption in jobs. I don't know why. The data may not show it, but everybody else in America does. And didn't we just learn the but lesson it, of ignoring that? Andy, part of, part of Jason's argument is that, oh, we've heard this again and again oh. and again. And you're saying this time is different. I do think this time is different because I think the and, facts are entirely well, different. Let, let me bring so, in Jared look, Bernstein. It's, it's, I don't think it's legitimate to argue that you, know, you shouldn't make predictions and, they, and then make predictions. <laughs> Uh, because we don't know what's uh, coming around the corner. And you're right uh, about that, Andy. Um, And Jason's right that when people have said this has been coming around the corner, it hasn't been. What I would say is I'd encourage the audience to think in a commonsensical way about this. Look around. Do you really see – I happen to walk up here from Penn Station Day. There's a lot of work going on in New York, let me tell you. Do you look around, and not just in New York, but throughout the country, do you really see uh, the end of work? I see a lot of work that needs to be done in transportation, in infrastructure, in childcare, where people, not robots, are so important, in teaching, where people, not robots, must uh, do the work, in elder care, same thing. And if we're smart, in areas like renewable energy, where I believe there's uh, serious and deep employment possibilities. And that's precisely the kind of dynamic that has happened throughout history. New opportunities, new sectors, new places for us to do things that need Need to be done. Okay, Charles Murray. Yeah, for a long time, artificial intelligence was way overhyped, oversold, underperformed. And, and I think the way to th- look at the curve we're on right now, it's been going like this, and we are about, we're, we've just started the steep uh, incline, whereby artificial intelligence is enabling software to do things that would be considered 10 years away just a year ago, such as, for example, becoming the best Go player in the world because of software taught itself how to play Go. I think something I want to add on to Andy's point is it's not just uh, working-class jobs that are going to get displaced. The really great hollowing out of jobs is going to be in white-collar jobs, in accountancy, in uh, all sorts of uh, legal, uh, paralegal work, in all sorts of things where you used to make a good salary because you had to be pretty bright to do it. You had to make judgments. And guess what? At this point, the judgments made by the software, in many cases, are better than the judges made by the employees. It's going to be a huge displacement. Jason Furman. Just to respond directly to two things you both said, absolutely, we're going to have a lot of disruption and a lot of change. We had a lot of disruption and a lot of change. We went from agriculture to manufacturing, from manufacturing to services. The question is, what do we do to help people cope with and deal with that change and land unemployment? But I wanted to, Charles, take your example of lawyers. The New York Times had a good write-up of a study, I think, from McKinsey recently. Mm -hmm. There's all this talk that AI can do all the discovery for us, so that's going to replace lawyers. Well, lawyers also appear in courtrooms. Lawyers talk to their clients. Lawyers negotiate things. 
AI can't do any of those activities. And when people have looked at it carefully in that study, they found that these AIs are replacing about 2% of what lawyers do per year, which means 98% it's not replacing. And by the way, that 2%, that's about the average productivity growth we've had for the last 60 years. That's what we've been dealing with. Paralegal, not lawyer. Which is like stock traders and stock analysts, all of which is now the Potemkin Village down on Wall Street because there used to be people doing those jobs, and now algorithms do them. How many of us use travel agents? The unemployment rate is still below 5%. I see a lot of people working down there. Mm -hmm. All right. So so to a degree, we simply have an impasse on this question of what the future holds, but that doesn't mean that we can't can't keep going forward because I want to take to the side arguing for the motion something that your opponents say is that what they say is most, I think, wrongheaded from their point of view about your argument, is its emphasis on surrender to the reality that these jobs won't exist uh, against the other option of working more creatively and, and harder at trying to match people to the jobs for the future. And that's their main critique is don't give up. You're giving up too early. Let's continue to do some sort of creative work on creative programs, education, et cetera, job matching. Andy Stern, what about that? So I'm not giving up, but... I think we should raise the minimum wage. I think we should do many of the things they say. But we would be irresponsible to not take into effect an incredible amount of belief that something big is going to happen that's going to affect people's lives. People are already insecure. This could be a supplement. It doesn't have to be a replacement, just like the EITC is a supplement to work. There will be work. It's just not going to be enough of it. And I think what we need to do is have a policy that's flexible enough, and we should understand that when the agriculture to the Industrial Revolution, the Industrial Revolution to now went on, it was miserable for several decades, as the head of the Bank of England said. And what are we going to do? Just let people suffer? Or are we going to have a policy that's flexible enough to help make that transition. So bottom line, without a UBI being part of the process, you're saying that their hopes for some sort of solution are, 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 are in vain. They're as good as they are right now, which is pretty so, bad. Jason mm-hmm. oh, I'm sorry, Jared. Oh, yeah. so, so I actually am, don't think that's our main argument. Okay. <laughs> I think it's a, a key part of our argument, uh, this, this uh, argument about uh, employment not disappearing and going up in smoke. There's still a lot of work for people to do. But I think, to me, our core argument is the following. I said it, Jason said it. The way I said it was, a dollar going to someone who doesn't really need it is a dollar that isn't going to someone who really does. Okay? That is the problem with the U, the universal, of universal basic income. I mean, uh, their plan gives $12,000 a year to Bill Gates, to Warren Buffett. And they don't need it. Uh, And in fact, Andy talked about the EITC. That's a really important wage subsidy for uh, low-income people, lifts 10 million people out of poverty every year. He takes the EITC and he takes food stamps and he puts that into the UBI and dilutes that anti-poverty effectiveness. And that, to me, is the core problem here because it's not just that the UBI is uh, going to people who don't need it. It's that you're undermining some poverty reduction okay. effects that are working let, I want to let Charles Murray respond to that. that you're, they're saying that your plan would be burning some anti-poverty programs that actually do good and do work. Okay, now we could go into a variety of ways in which at income levels you start to claw back part of the grant and all of this. I don't think I want to spend a whole lot of time talking about that because I don't think that Jason and Jared have gotten our core point which is, ah, you don't want to give money to people who don't need it, so we'll have means-tested programs, which is what we have now. And you end up with this bureaucratic, no, it's not that it's so expensive, 
That's not the problem with the bureaucracy. The people in this audience probably mostly have to deal with the government in terms of doing the DMV. And uh, when the IRS tells you you owe them an additional $855. And it is irritating and problematic to do it. Imagine that you are living your life supplicating bureaucrats. Okay, get bits and pieces of this and that and the other thing. And you can have a life where you actually have cash that you can decide how to use on your own. At the basis of the universal basic income for the future... I think that both Andy and I are saying that it's time to free the serfs, that the serfs are getting all sorts of benefits. We want to make them into independent people Charles, with I, the resources. Charles, I, 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 I want to come in on that point. I, I want to come in and explore that point, but I still feel that your opponent has made a point that you haven't responded to, and maybe Andy okay. wants to, that anti-poverty programs that are in place are effective and your UBI proposal threatens to undo something that's, that is working for significant numbers of people. So one fact. So there's a cost One there. fact. 43 million people, according to the federal government, are in, at the federal poverty level. That's about $12,000 a year. $12,000 a year ends poverty for the first time in America. Jason Furman. And $50,000 a year would be even better than $10,000 a year. In fact, our side is going to support a million dollars a year and ask you to vote for us and against our opponents. There's nothing more tedious and boring than arithmetic. I used to do it in meetings in the White House. It was not visionary. It's not exciting. It's really boring. But it's really important because it's something we can't change. But this plan, you get rid of every income support program. You get rid of every income support program outside of Social Security. That is enough for a UBI of $1,500 a person. So now that family we heard about before working so hard at the minimum wage, instead of making $28,000 a year, they're making $31,000 a year. Does that sound as exciting to you? Actually, it's a bit worse than that because at $28,000 a year, they're actually getting a decent amount now in terms of nutritional assistance, housing vouchers, and the like. They would lose that with the money saved from losing that going to pay someone at 50000 a 100000 a million, $10 million a year. Okay, we, if we got additional revenue, there's a lot of places to invest it. I would start with preschool, continue through college and training. Those have higher returns than you can get in the stock market. They can help us prepare for a future where jobs are being dislocated, get a high rate of return, and are a more fair and efficient way to do it. Okay, Andy Stern, an argument. Andy Stern, an argument. I would just say for someone who didn't want to defend the status quo, boy, I've heard that argument for about 30 years now. It's, It's a great argument. It never has worked. And the basic math, this isn't phony math. It's not making up numbers. There are 43 million people in poverty. $1,000 a month takes them all out of poverty and gives them choice. The question is whether your plan makes it better or worse for them. If you are giving more money to someone at $80,000 a year, you are giving less money to a poor person. Unless you're giving them $12,000 a year. That is not less than they are getting now. Where Jason. is the money coming from? We well, that's collect, a different question. Collect, you, if you're going to argue the cost, argue the cost. If you're going to argue, are people better off? They're better off. And we, and we were arguing at this point, because this was the point you brought up, for, Jared, for that example, they're better off without the UBI. They're saying they're better off with the UBI. For many people, actually. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Jared, let's well, Jared, you, you have to. 
It's, 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 it sounds like phony math to me because it sounds to me like what you're doing is you're taking away what they have, which your plan does get rid of your income credit, right? It gets rid of food stamps. It gets rid of housing vouchers. It doesn't get rid of Social Security, which Charles does, but you don't. And then you're giving it back to them in some way, shape, or form. What we're talking about now... What's that? And so, more. So what we're, talk, what we're talking about now is that the folks that were – and I, I, I use this in my opening comment. The people who were lifted out of poverty, and there were 40 million of them, 40 million people lifted out of poverty, were lifted out of poverty because all those programs that I just mentioned are taken uh, – once you take them away, they're poor. So I just don't understand the arithmetic that you're talking about. And secondly, the programs that I mentioned – uh, the benefits from nutritional support, the benefits from medical support, the benefits from uh, Head Start, the benefits from Pell. These, pro- the- these are long-lasting benefits. If you take that away and you give people a few thousand bucks, in the long run, I'm afraid they'd be worse off. So I don't understand how you pile more money. 12,000 bucks, on- not a few thousand bucks. Look, we have two. We have two different things we're conflating. Yeah, the, the, one is, can we afford the program? And the second one was, will people at low income levels be better off? The people who get the most money in, in terms of the size of the benefits are single women with children, and under the additional twelve thousand dollars, which just Medicaid is still being provided under Andy's plan, the numbers add up to about the same. They are they, don't, they are not winners or losers uh, in in this calculation. But in terms of all the other low-income people, the ones who are making fifteen, twenty thousand dollars a year, particularly a couple, an additional twenty-four thousand dollars onto their income, they are way better off. So, if you want to say we can't afford it, let's engage in that debate. I'll be glad to do it. But the, the idea that oh, they're going to lose their food stamps, they're going to lose their EITC, well, the twelve thousand bucks for most low-income Americans is way more than they are getting in those benefits. Uh, first of all, uh, two things. One is that's actually factually inaccurate in that in certain circumstances, um, you actually are getting more benefits today. And the reason is because those bureaucrats making people jump through hoops we've seen denigrated so much do things like on your tax form, you fill out the number of children you have and you get a larger EITC if you're in a family with three or more children than a family with one children. That's one of the things those bureaucrats do. And that, by the way, was partly my fault. We put that in during the Obama administration. (laughs) Another thing those bureaucrats do is unemployment insurance. They make sure you're unemployed. And, really importantly, they make sure you're looking for a job. The evidence is that actually when you put a bit more funding into the part where they screen you to check whether you're really looking for a job something conservatives have supported because it's a form of program integrity to keep people committing fraud off of it, it actually helps more people look for jobs and find jobs. So that's something where you get a bureaucrat involved. They do a bit of extra work. It's not so simple. It's not writing them a check, but it's for a good purpose with a good outcome. Andy Stern. You worked in welfare bureaucracies. Well, as I said, I had three binders in front of me to be so helpful. And now, I guess, if I'm a welfare worker, I also have to drug test the people who are unemployment because that's now what we're going to do. We're going to force the people on Medicaid to work. You know, this is not a very benign welfare system, and Martin Luther King had it right. You know, putting people's choices in their own hand is the greatest dignity you can give someone, and asking some bureaucrat to fill out their form, you know, is not the kind of dignity we need if we have another choice. 
Yeah, no, I think that that, I think you make uh, a a good point. And that's why the thing that I kind of like about some of the things you've suggested is that. Keep coming, baby. You're coming our way. (laughs) Is that if you, you, if we, if you take what we have and you build on top of it and you provide low income people with some extra resources, I'd be for that. And I think Jason would be for that as well. The problem is, is, is this income constraint that you're just not dealing with. Your example before, and it's easy to get tangled up in this, really sounded like you're going to take everybody's benefits away because you're going to combine them into a UBI, and then you're going to give them back to them in the form of a UBI. So they're, they're no better off except for the fact, and here you have a point, that they have cash now instead of having to go through a set of programs. But but recognize, but, but, but rec- no, hold on, this is key. Recognize that you can't do that if you're taking a big chunk of resources that you're now giving to low-income people and giving it to high-income people. And the other side has not dealt with that problem yet. The only way to do that is to take it from low-income people or raise a bunch more taxes, and at some point you have to face that constraint. Okay, it, John, it, John it, I'm bursting over here. Okay. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> Go ahead, Charles. We have That's two, the first time I've ever heard a debater pers- say he was going to burst, and it frightens me. So... Go. <laughs> we have two profoundly different views of human beings. We have over there, and this is going to sound invidious, and I like you guys. I'm sorry it sounds invidious. But, <laughs> but that going. we know better. We know how to dole out the benefits just right. We know how to calibrate this and calibrate that. But we can't just give people money. That's too simple. And, and it's much better if we do all of these smart things that we know how to do. And you got Andy over here and I saying, give them the damn money and let them decide how they want to live their lives and, and get out of their way. Can I? Okay. Hey, uh, hey, wait, wait, one moment. I, I do feel that each of you are making points that the others are not responding to, and, and your, opponents have, <laughs> your opponents have made the case a number of times that there's dignity involved with being able to I, make your own choice. I, I, I haven't heard you respond to it. And your, your, the other side has been telling you that you haven't told us what's going to happen, why it works to take to give Bill Gates $12,000, and aren't you not taking that money away from somebody else? And, and I want to move on to the third topic that you raised, Charles, which is the, the whole social impact of this on the fabric and the texture of life. But before we do that, I want to give your side 30 seconds to respond to their well-made point, I think, that you're talking about giving money to rich people as well who may not need it. Okay, so the one-tenth of one percent which is $62 million, pay the same tax rate as the people in the 20% bracket. 17% of the income is paid by the richest people. They get 27% of the tax expenditures. Why don't They're getting money every single way. So all of a sudden, we want to give money to poor people, and we can't do it because somehow we're giving too much money to rich people. We have a distribution problem. The tax system favors the wealthy, and we are going to have to do something about it. And putting this on the back of UBI, Bill Gates' is $12,000 is a pittance compared to what he's getting in every other tax expenditure that we should be talking about as okay. well. That is responsive. Now, I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't. I don't want to dig on that point anymore because I want to hear you respond to the, their point made a number of times that if that requiring means testing for people to get benefits, requiring drug testing, requiring them to prove who they're married to, who they're not married to, is humiliating, and their system injects dignity where it does not exist now. I very much believe in dignity. Your EITC is an incredibly easy thing to claim. You can spend that money 
on whatever you wanted on most of the hoops we've heard about, the drug testing, the limits on what you can do, have been put in place over the years by conservatives in the name of their notion of dignity. I think they've been misguided, and I would reform those programs, simplify and streamline them, that maybe even move towards cash. That's different, though, than universal. For universal, we have to talk about where the money's coming from and how we want to spend that amount of money, which hopefully we'll get to. Charles, I want to now move on to the point. I, I, I don't mean to keep stepping on the applause. It's, there's a lag in the applause. I, you need to be faster. Charles, I want to give you 30 seconds, and I'm going to time it on my watch. I want you to, to reiterate the point that you made in your opening statement to kick off this next section about the, social, the impact on the social fabric of a UBI in terms of what you were talking about, having options. And, and I, want, I just want to do that so that your opponents can respond to it. Your Real 30 qu- seconds starts now. Really quickly, quickly, I'm saying that the kinds of human needs uh, that we need to deal with are best dealt with by friends and relatives, and that the UBI, one of its major effects, is to focus resources on the community. The key to understanding the UBI is not that I get $12,000, but everybody else is getting the $12,000 and everybody knows it. And that triggers a cascade of feedback loops, which are precisely what American civil society has always been about, dealing with human needs at the lowest possible level. It's the most ephemeral part of your argument, but also one of the most interesting. I want to take it to the other side. Yeah, I don't find it that interesting. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But you agree on ephemeral. Ephemeral you'll take. I'm not sure what a federal means, but I don't like that either. Uh, So the the thing that we're trying to impart here is that not that what we have is great. What we have is problematic. Andy knows that. Jason knows that. You've heard a little bit about that. But that there are many ways in which I think you don't appreciate, that that people don't appreciate, Charles doesn't appreciate, in which these things are working. And yet, in its place, we have what sounds to me like this kind of Charles Murray fantasy about civil society. Now, I know Charles' work very well. I've read all of his books, and, 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 many, and many of them are erudite, some of them less so. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I will say that his version of civil society is not the same as mine, and I suspect not the same as a lot of people's out there. And when he starts talking about friends and relatives will do that, maybe he's right, but that's just a fantasy. What I'm telling you about is that in In reality, there's a set of things that are working to help people right now. They're not perfect. We need to build upon them. But we can't throw them out because Charles has dreams of friends and relatives helping you in civil society. That's that's ephemeral. That's ephemeral? Charles. Charles and Andy, if you want to be part of this response, you can as well. I think, I, I think an awful lot of people in the audience live in the kind of civil society, or did as children before they came to the Upper West Side, uh, lived in the kind of society I'm talking about. It's not a fantasy. It's the way America has historically worked and still does. All right. I want to uh, go into audience questions at this point. Here's how it will work. Folks, if you're upstairs, I apologize. I can't take questions from you up there, but if you come downstairs and I see you come through the back door, I'll attempt to come to you for <clears throat> making the effort. But if you raise your hand, um, I, will, uh, I will call on you. A mic will be brought to you. And um, uh, just state your name, please. If you're blogging or writing publicly, we'd appreciate knowing who you're with. 
and, and, and really ask a question, tight question in 30 seconds. Please don't debate with the debaters. And um, I'll take a question from over in the corner there. Ma'am? Yeah. Uh, hi, Jillian Creighton with Futurism. Um, so for those opposed to UBI, we've heard a lot about how uh, it's a bad idea because it would result in either cutting benefits or raising taxes. But what about real, the reallocation of funds? For example, the United States spends more money on defense than the next mm-hmm. how many nations combined? Is there no possibility of perhaps taking funds from that arena and reallocating them to maybe focus on our own citizens? So, some of this is about, um, first of all, the taxes, by the way, just to do the magnitude of them, um, to pay for this plan would be $1.5 trillion per year. That would be nearly as much as we collect in income taxes today. I'm for higher taxes. There's a lot of things I do with higher taxes. No one is going to support doubling the income taxes, people say today. Certainly not Charles's friends, who are all invested in human freedom, dignity, and a tax increases one-tenth the magnitude that we're talking about here, describe it in apocalyptic terms um, as the end of America. On defense spending, um, to some degree I agree with you um, that I could see arguments for lower defense spending. Then the question is, what do you think the best use of that money is? Is it a check for someone making $60,000 a year? Or is it universal preschool? Universal preschool, certainly it has more bureaucrats, It has requirements. For example, you need to go to school to benefit from universal preschool. I don't mind that requirement. So this just isn't the first claim of my money. Now, if it's for people in poverty, sure, that's great. But all this plan does at best seems to be to replace what those people are getting today. So no, I wouldn't get rid of defense to replace what people are getting from poverty programs today, give money to someone $80,000, and continue to be one of the worst countries in the OECD when it comes to the percentage of our population that goes to preschool. The other side has the option to, to respond to that, if you'd like I, to. I, I would just say we're giving 43 million people, we're taking them out of poverty. To keep saying to give people what they have today is just wrong. Down in the corner there. Now it's going to be hard for the camera. Do you mind coming out to the aisle, end of the aisle? Thanks. Um, so since it's sort of going off the last question because it didn't feel like it was totally answered to me, um, instead of looking at this in, this is for the uh, opponents of it, instead of uh, looking at this from the perspective of um, it can't be done because it's either raising taxes on the middle class to pay for it or it's coming, the money's coming from other programs. Let's assume that you are tasked with putting this together. And I would like to, I would like to challenge you to come up with some other ways you could maybe pay for it, like carbon taxes, reduced health care costs, raising flat taxes on everyone of 10%. Um, Taxing unearned income at the full rate, taxing financial transactions I, I, at fractional rate. I'm things like see that. where you're coming from. Yeah. Uh, like, what would you do I, as um, a solution? Uh, during, look, in my, in my, I support a lot of what you're trying to say there because in my work, I'm often thinking about precisely those sorts of, of mechanisms to derive more revenue, uh, and I also like the idea about taking a chunk of defense spending and and using it uh, for. Uh, uh, social benefits, for people's well-being. What I don't like 
uh, is giving it to people who don't need it. And so you have to think about biggest bang for the buck. What you just described isn't going to raise $1.8 trillion, so it's not going to pay for, for what they've described. The numbers just don't add up. So you have to get the biggest bang for the buck. And the biggest bang for the buck comes from the kinds of things we've been talking about, not from wasting precious dollars on people who don't need them. Charles, would you like to respond to that? I, it's well, a- I think that if we're going to talk about budgets, we better look at trend lines because I think the, uh, the statement is the safety net of the future, and if you play out the trend lines for the costs of Social Security and welfare programs, I'll tell you what happened when I did uh, the book In Our Hands back in 2006. I calculated the cost of my plan and the amount of money we were spending on transfers, and I said the lines would cross between the cost of the programs in 2011, which they did. The point is right now that, that a basic income, you can predict demographically pretty much exactly what it's going to cost you, and it's going to be a very shallow slope. What we're looking at with the other entitlement programs are very steep rises. So if you're talking about the affordability of this today, you've got one set of issues. If you're talking about the affordability of this in 2030, you've got a very different situation. Okay, another question? I'm... I'm I'm, uh, I, I'm going to be honest about why I'm hesitating. I'm kind of looking for some women to ask questions because, you know, and <laughs> let's bring some voices in here. Where? Thank you. I couldn't find it. Yeah, stand up. If you could stand up. Thanks. Um, so I have a question for the four side. Um, you talked about positive social pressures from people knowing that you have that money. How would you avoid having negative social pressures with companies trying to suppress paying a livable wage? Well, well I think the good thing about uh, having $12,000 is you basically have your own strike fund. You know, right now, if you're desperate for work, if you only have $400, don't have $400 for an unexpected expense and someone offers you a job, you have not much choice but to take it. But to have walk-away money, to have an ability to say no you know, gives you a a series of choices to start a business, to do things that people can't even dream of doing to now, I think, you know, gives people agency, gives them freedom, gives them choice, gives them the same rights that the rich kids do who live in garages in Silicon Valley because someone's giving them a parental basic income. It gives everybody a basic income to do what they need to do. What is the parental basic income? Parental basic income is, listen, how many of you in this audience are like me who help your kid go on vacation, who help your kid... You know, pay their pay yeah. their auto insurance or help them put a down payment on a home. People do that. That's what families do. Rich people have a basic income called their parents, or middle class people <laughs> called their parents. Why doesn't everyone have the same basic income? So, I have children and uh, have uh, myself a fair, fairly uh, robust parental income spender. So I know of what you speak, Andy. Um, look, twelve thousand. The problem is twelve thousand dollars is a strike fund for you know a month, uh, and uh, and that's an annual salary. Andy's thing is a thousand dollars a month. That's not enough of a strike fund. That's why. Take the resources from you know a financial transaction tax, a carbon tax, uh, defense funds. Put them into not a guaranteed income for everybody, so you end up with the waste problem we've described, but into a guaranteed job. 
boy, that's way more than a strike fund. That's actually a job, and I would insist that this is a job to pay a living wage because I believe there's lots of work to be done, and I described it. I'm happy to describe it again. That's where I would go with this, a guaranteed job for low-income people. Anyone who's able-bodied, wants to work, can work, and that we could pay for on the kinds of numbers that we're throwing around now. That doesn't cost the same amount as a UBI because it doesn't waste its resources on people who don't need it. I want to remind you that we are... I want to remind you that we are in the question and answer section of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan, your moderator and host. We have four debaters, two teams of two, debating this motion. The universal basic income is the safety net of the future. Uh, Okay, right down front on the aisle. If you could stand up, they'll find you. Thanks. It's coming coming, uh, from behind you. Thanks. Thanks for your patience. Thank you. Um, I'm just curious. Could you just you know, give us a, a name or a first name? Oh, yeah. Bob. Hello. Hmm. Hi, Bob. <laughs> as, as yeah, we Bob believe that. Yeah. Yeah. That's a real name. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so my, my, my question is that sometimes we, the, these, this can be sort of spoken about in the abstract. And I'm curious to know, um, how much time have any of you directly spent with people in poverty or the truck driver who may lose their job? And how has that informed your opinion as you talk about this subject? I think that's a fair and good question. Um, who, Is it okay to count people that aren't in the United States? I spent uh, six years in Thailand, mostly in uh, subsistence-level villages, so I spent all of my time with poor people there. During the 1970s, I worked on programs, uh, the social programs, evaluation of them, where I spent a lot of time in Southside Chicago, uh, inner city Atlanta, etc., Anybody so, else want to... Um... Yeah, but I mean, I, I spent my entire life with janitors, child care, home care, food service, security workers, and welfare workers, in fact. Um, and so my whole life is somewhat informed, and the reason I came to UBI was because I see it as the answer for those people compared to the welfare system and the low wages that they currently have. So my uh, first uh, job as a grown-up was about 40 blocks north of here in East Harlem, where I was a social worker for many years. And I, I remember on the very first day of the job, I helped somebody get Medicaid. Now, a lot of people probably like to disparage Medicaid and say that that's some sort of terrible throwaway program uh, to poor people. I can't tell you how much this meant to her. It was like a gold card. Same thing with helping her when I helped her get her kid into a preschool program. Uh, same thing when I helped when she eventually got a job and I helped her get an earned income credit. I'm not saying I did anything good. I'm, I, I'm advertising for these pieces that were on the table. If I had stead and given her $1,000 a month, she never would have been started on a ladder of upward mobility, where at least this person I'm thinking of eventually, eventually ended up. Um, and I'm not going to try to compete because I was spending too much time doing math. <laughs> so I, I just want to say that's normally a question I would not, uh, I would not take because it doesn't actually their, – their experience doesn't actually relate to their ability to present an argument. But in this case, I felt – that you were making a case about their credibility, uh, and, and I found it really interesting, so thanks for bringing that to the, to the debate. Um, yes, ma'am. Yeah. Hi. Hi. Uh, Mike's coming for you. <laughs> Hi, my name's Sarah. I'm also with Futurism. Um, there, someone stated earlier that there was an assumption that new jobs are exponential, that no disruptions are ever coming, 
And uh, my question is that, you know, 25 years go by and we see clearly that the job market cannot keep up with automation and employment reaches depression levels. Would you then support UBI at that point? And okay. if not, what solution would yeah, you propose? Yeah, let's take that question to the side arguing against the motion, who it's meant for. Yeah. To be clear, I'm not talking about the very far future. And I think if we're ever in this situation, I would be perfectly comfortable allowing the robots to design our UBI program (laughs) for us. Um, If we're looking at the next couple decades, though, I'm much more concerned with what we can do to prepare people for those jobs rather than giving up and assuming that yeah, they can't and, get I, and I just want to say in terms of sort of an instruction to the jury, it, it's, it was agreed by the debaters that we're not talking about 100 years from now future. We're really, we're really we're talking about, and the side arguing for the motion really was presenting a case about something coming at us rather quickly. So the, the, the side is not, future isn't, you know, the year 5,000 for these guys. They don't have to defend that. Um, right down the aisle here. Hi, my name's Steph. Um, my question is, do you have any concerns that if you do give $1,000 a month to people that inflation would just end up affecting it in the end so it'll be worth less? Do I, I certainly have a concern. Andrew Stern. But, you know, all the work that's been done to date has not proven that to be happening. You know, the Alaska dividend, where they do get $1,300 a month, you know, hasn't proved to be a big inflationary... I, I'm not sure everybody knows about that. So okay, in Alaska, instead of giving everybody a new welfare program that Jason and, and Jared would redesign, you know, they decided just to give people $1,300... They give people money from the oil reserves directly to people. And they have a trust that every month, every year, I'm sorry, people get something between 1000 and $2,000 a and year. And in 2008, they got $3,289 per person... No matter how many people in the family, everybody got it. So some families of five came away with $16,000. So that was a different way to, you know, to give people money. And there and the other experiments, we did five experiments in the United States about universal basic income during Richard Nixon's time. We're now doing them in Finland and Ontario. And we'll learn more, but so far there's not evidence. If I could just say very briefly, that's not an inherent problem to UBI. It's a fully solvable one. You can take the benefit and index it and have it grow over time. That being said, if you look at many of the UBI proposals, they don't have that feature. So, for example, they index to inflation, but they get rid of health care. You're supposed to buy it out of your UBI. The cost of health care rises faster than inflation. That's precisely what we see the Republicans doing Right now, with their vote tomorrow in Congress, they take Medicaid and replace it with something that grows over time, but it grows at a smaller rate. So you have to look at the details of these things, and I worry that a lot of them, by taking away natural ways, you know, going up, food stamps go up with the cost of food. If the cost of food goes up, they go up automatically. Anything in this going to automatically go up with the cost of food? Um, I think that's unlikely that that's how it would end up being designed, and that makes me worried. Right, and Senator Black, sure, if you could stand up, thanks. It's coming on your right-hand side. And if you could tell us your name again, please. Thank you. My name is DC, and I have a question for the four. Motion. Uh, You keep on talking about 43 million people being raised out of poverty, but yet you are for universal basic income rather than for basic income for people who are poor. Could you explain why you would want to extend it to the whole population rather than to a specific subset of the population? 
Because I think the, the record in the United States, and you're watching it right in real life in front of your eyes, is that people always want to cut things for people who don't have much and want to give more to people who have a lot. And so I think from a political point of view, the reason we failed over and over and over again to improve the welfare programs is because we divide the population into the people that deserve it and the people that don't, even though the, you, know, you can argue that till the day is long, that that's exactly reversed. So I would say to build the political calculus, as we've done with Social Security and Medicare, that makes this an enduring program, is not to make one group of people stand out and be vulnerable to be cut, but to give it to everyone and use the tax system, which is how we claw back money from people who have them money, rather than trying to do this all through a welfare system, which has not worked up to now. Jared Bernstein. Um, Two things. One, um, a point Jared just made to me, and he would have made better, is that for the first time in this debate, um, we're hearing our opponents talk about political realism. We've asked us to suspend it for the rest of their argument. Um, I don't even think it's a correct reading of political realism, though. Social security benefits go to all of us. It's an incredibly popular program. Since the early 1970s, we've passed legislation twice to cut social security benefits, zero times to raise it. The earned income tax credit just goes to poor people. We established that in the early 1970s. Since then, we've voted eight times to increase the earned income tax credit, zero times to decrease it. It's had more political support than any program I can think of, and that's, I think, in part because it's tied to work and it's a reward and encouragement to work, something that has proven appealing from Richard Nixon through Ronald Reagan to the present. I want to remind you, we are in the question and answer section of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan, your host. We have four debaters, two teams of two, debating this motion, the universal basic income is the safety net of the future. Right on the almost the aisle. Yeah, thanks, sir. Hi, uh, my name is Josh. Um, I appreciate the simplicity of the proposal of universal basic income. I'm curious how... Those who support it will ensure that this isn't used as a Trojan horse to undermine our, uh, the social safety net. Essentially, to, to defund these programs, say you're going to fund a UBI, but then essentially not be able to raise the taxes of the reven- revenue to do so. Andy Stern. Yeah, I mean, I would never do this unless it was all done in one single package. It's kind of like repeal and replace. You know, I'm not doing the repeal without the replace, That's and I think this is well. true here. You have to have, as we did with the Obamacare, you have to have a full package. And we know that nothing is perfect and people will argue around the edges. But in the end, we did increase health care for 20 million people. In the end, UBI will relieve poverty for 43 million people. Another question? Sir, uh, a plaid, blue plaid shirt, if you could stand up. I know you had to check your shirt. I, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what color my tie is. I know I do. That's right. Uh, hi, Danny. Uh, I've heard a lot of anecdotes and and theories from the four side. I'm just curious, do you have any hard numbers or uh, actual uh, facts from existing uses of the ABI that show that it has worked in other countries or in small samples at least? Charles. Well, the problem with uh, experiments is that a great deal of the effect of the UBI depends on the knowledge it will be permanent, and you can think ahead. If you know that you're in a five-year experiment, your whole set calculus uh, changes, and so that's why I really... Don't, I don't think that there is a good set of conclusions we can draw from even an ideal experiment that we set up. 
If you know that for the rest of your life you are going to have this resource available to you on the first of every month, it's not just your own decisions that has changed, it is also your interactions with the people around you that have changed. And so have not got any hard numbers on that, have not got any hard data on that. Just talk to somebody with a trust fund. That, that would, there's some information in that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's an interesting Yeah, I can take more questions. Right down in the center here. Um, uh, third row, thanks, and it's coming in from the right. If you could tell us your name, too. Hi, uh, my name is Dan, and uh, I'm currently going to school at Columbia University for computer science on my universal basic income, the post 11 GI Bill. Uh, so I have that to depend on every month. Um, so my question is, as a future software engineer, um, and in considering the responsibility that a lot of tech companies actually uh, have for the automation and the software that's replacing these jobs, um, who do you believe, e- either side, uh, should bear the brunt of uh, paying the taxes uh, to either implement a UBI or to raise the funds to support the people who are being displaced by automation? That's an ec- excellent question. Let's take it to the side yeah. arguing against first, Jared Bernstein. Um, so first of all, I wouldn't be here if it weren't for the GI Bill. So uh, that's an interesting observation and admonition on my part. But it also was a pretty concentrated piece of work. Most of the people who benefited from the GI Bill just having to do with the structure of uh, – this is my, my father was in the war, um, World War II uh, – were people from low-income areas. So it kind of actually fits closer to our model of getting the water to the fire versus getting the water to where it's not needed. Look, I'm – as I think I've suggested in some other answers, I would raise the funds needed to do the kinds of improvements that we think are so necessary from more progressive taxation. Uh, I, I like the idea of looking more deeply into spending on defense. It's the next seven nations. We spend more on defense than the next seven nations combined. Uh, so I like looking for where there, I'd like to look for where there's some, some maybe some wiggle room in, in the spending side of the budget, but primarily we're, uh, we, we are, and Andy said this earlier, we're collecting as a share of their income far less revenue from the very wealthy than we have uh, uh, throughout the history of our country. It's this inequality problem, and it's compounded by the fact that the wealthy are able to kind of buy through money in politics a kind of tax policy that protects them, that insulates them from more progressive changes. So that's how I would collect those those funds. So did, you, did your question have any flavor of the people who are doing technology – the big companies that are going to influence these changes would have a greater responsibility to fund it. Were you, were you getting at that in any way? Yes. You were. Okay, I just want to keep that in, in the you were part of the conversation as the other side responds to it. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I think this is a crisis for our country. I think when 47% of people can't find $400 and driverless trucks are on their way. And I think what's been great about the country is when we've had a crisis, we've responded. We found $4 trillion in QE. We found a trillion dollars for stimulus. We find money when the savings and loan. Let's find some money for people who are really hurting now and probably find a way to supplement 
their incomes and provide security going forward and potentially then go to a full universal basic income when the time comes. But it is some of the things we've talked about. It, it, maybe it's a robot tax that Bill Gates talks about, but there's a VAT tax, a carbon tax, an asset tax, a border tax. There's a financial transaction tax in this country for 50 years. We but got I think, rid of the I, I think the question sort of encompasses it. But, yeah, should, should but it there should be a go silic- to everybody, not just be focused on particular companies. Right. Okay. That's what I wanted to get at. And the other side, did, did you get that sense of the question that it was a oh, sort of, should I, there be I a mean, Silicon Valley I, I tax? Technology has disproportionately benefited the most advantaged in our society, and they can and should afford to pay more in taxes. That's a separate issue from what we're debating here, though, which is what use that revenue would go to. Thank you. And that concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is the universal basic income is the safety net of the future. And now we move on to round three. Round three will be closing statements by each debater in turn. They will be two minutes each. Immediately after that, you will be asked to vote again, and we will declare our winner. Our motion is the universal basic income is the safety net of the future. Here making his closing statement in support of the motion, Andrew Stern, author of Raising the Floor, How a Universal Basic Income Can Renew Our Economy and Rebuild the American Dream. So Bill Gates once said we always overestimate the change that will occur in the next two years and underestimate the change that's going to occur in the next ten. Don't let yourself be lulled into inaction. The fact is that we can't afford to tinker much longer because change is happening on an accelerated basis. A safety net that was built when I was a caseworker in the 21st century is not the right fit for the 21st century. Not in a world where Uber, the largest taxi company, owns no vehicles. Facebook, the largest media company, has no creation other than by its participants. Amazon, the most valuable retailer, owns no inventory. And although I wish I could go back and change what happened when Martin Luther King and Richard Nixon all were for a guaranteed income, I can't. But we can go forward in a way that gives people the dignity and the choice, that gives the warehouse workers at Amazon or gives the truck drivers or the insurance agents, the accountants, some sense that their future will be secure. Our choice, according to the thousand experts at Pew Research, is this. Either we're going to do something or we're going to see vast increases in inequality, masses who are effectively unemployable, and breakdowns in the social order. That's not the America we want. A universal basic income, it's flexible, it's humane, it ends poverty, it offers choices and stability now and as we transition to a new economy. It's the one comprehensive policy that has support from both the left and right. UBI has issues, I admit it. No single policy is going to ever solve every single problem. But I remember what Winston Churchill once said about democracy. It's the worst form of government except for all others. And I would like to say UBI as a policy is exactly the same. It is far superior to all the other choices we have. Our future, our family's future is not a matter of chance. It's a matter of choice. And the right choice for the future safety net for this country is a universal basic income, and I urge you to vote yes. Thank you, Andrew Stern. And now making his closing statement against the motion, Jason Furman. He is a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. I certainly can't predict the future. If I had been around 50 years ago, I wouldn't have known that we'd have lots of people employed as software engineers 
and app developers and all the other things that we have in our economy today. I can't tell you exactly what the jobs will be 50 years from now, but I can tell you Americans are more likely to get those jobs and succeed in those jobs if they have a good education everywhere from preschool through college. That's something we're dramatically underinvesting in today. I wish there was a single magical bullet that would solve all our problems. I think actually if there was one, it probably would be education would be the closest thing. But the world is a messy place. I think it probably makes sense to give you more support when you're unemployed than when you're not unemployed. If you have a larger family than a smaller family. If you want to move to a neighborhood with more mobility, something that's been proven to raise your earnings by 30% um, rather than wanting to stay put. We're not going to get those programs exactly right. We may not even get them close to right. But rather than saying, let's get rid of all of them, let's talk about the things we're doing wrong, try to make them better, because getting rid of all of them runs into this problem that I've harped on again and again, which is arithmetic. If you support giving everyone if you, the million dollars a year that I talked about before sounds even better to you than the ideas you've heard, ask yourself where that money will come from. Eliminating the Defense Department would not be enough to pay for this proposal. A carbon tax would pay for 10% of this proposal. We have a limited set of resources in our country. We need to use them in a smart, effective, targeted way for the people who need them most for the areas that will have the highest returns, which is why I would urge you to vote against this motion, which would drain money from all of that. Thank you. Thank you, Jason Furman. The motion again, the universal basic income is the safety net of the future. Here making his closing statement in support of the motion, Charles Murray, author of In Our Hands, A Plan to Replace the Welfare State. Jared and Jason uh, have talked a lot about the people who are being most helped by the current welfare system, while Andy and I have focused a lot on a much broader swath of the population. But let me go to those people who we refer to as living off welfare. And I'll, I'll, I'll try to put myself in that position. Let's say I'm 20 years old. I've gotten a terrible education. Uh, I don't have any job skills. I don't have a job. I live in a neighborhood where most of the other people are in the same fix as I am. And then I hear people uh, saying that I'm a slacker and that I ought to take advantage of my opportunities. And I say, opportunities, what opportunities? There is no realistic route for me. Yes, I will get my welfare benefits from the current system. It's humiliating, and it ties me to where I am, can't afford to move. In that context you have the UBI come in. The UBI does not exhort me to go out and get a job. It doesn't stage manage my life in any way. It doesn't give me guidance. What it does is say to me this one thing, and I've never had a reason to believe it before. Your future is in your hands. That simple message, your future is in your hands, is what we in this room most want for ourselves and what we most want for our children. Please join me in endorsing a plan that will make it true for all of our fellow citizens as well. Thank you, Charles Murray. 
And the motion again, the universal basic income is the safety net of the future. And here making his closing against the motion, Jared Bernstein, a senior fellow at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. Of course, we want you to support our position and vote no on the question. But frankly, I care a lot more about what you take home with you from this debate. I've been a social scientist now for over three decades, and the thing that motivated me in my 20s burns just as bright in my 60s, and that's this. People must be able to realize their potential, their economic potential, their educational potential, their spiritual potential. I get that it's easier to write a check for everyone, including those who don't need the money, than to do the heavy policy lifting that can break down the barriers that so many people face today. I wish... I could do that with a UBI check with $1,000 a month to buy the dreams that Charles talked about, but they're more expensive than that. By providing everyone with, uh, with that kind of income, you're not going to come anywhere close to ensuring secure housing, adequate nutrition, access to quality childcare, educational opportunities from preschool to grade school to college and beyond, and a decent job that pays a living wage. What's more, we've made real progress against every one of those barriers. Not enough by a long shot. And the next four years, please God, make them just four years, uh, <laughs> will be pure defense, pure defense, trying to protect the progress that we've made. In that climate, I see no reason to help conservatives prove their prophecy, a demonstrably false one thus far, that anti-poverty programs will self-destruct. Like I said, I started my career as a social worker a few blocks north of here. Every single day, bar none, I saw clients that were people just like me, except for they weren't white, and where doors were flung open for me, they were slammed shut for them. If Andy wants to provide those folks with some extra resources, fine. Good idea. But let's not kid ourselves that we've helped them to overcome the barriers to realizing their potential. That work is much harder much longer lasting in the lives of those who've been left behind and thus much more important than UBI. Thank you. Thank you, Jared Bernstein. And that concludes round three of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate where the motion is the universal basic income is the safety net of the future. And now it's time to learn which side you feel has argued most persuasively. We're going to ask you again to go to the keypad at your seat and vote a second time. The motion, the universal basic income is the safety net of the future. Push number one. If you are with this motion now, push number two. If you are against this motion now, push number three. If you became or remain undecided. <laughs> and while that's going on, I, I just want to... Uh, I'd like to say this. Um, um, I said at the beginning of the evening that our goal is to have a tough debate in, uh, in a spirit of civility and, uh, and light. And I think we got that. These, all of these gentlemen in the, uh, in the green room ahead of time, they obviously liked and respected each other. And it was a pleasure to see that come to the stage tonight. So I want to thank them for what they did. I was, I was personally stunned to learn that uh, Jared Bernstein is in his 60s tonight, as, as, as shocked as when Charles told me he was 29. <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, but you all brought great spirit to this. I also want to say something else about the questions. I don't think I threw out a question tonight, and that's rare. And as I said, I was very taken by the 
the, the question you brought that normally I would have thrown out, I think it moved things forward, and I've learned a lesson from that, so thank you. Um, I want to make this other point. Um, those of you who are not regulars uh, have not heard me say this before. Those who have, please bear with me. Uh, we are a philanthropy, Intelligence Squared, um, pays uh, the, the, the tickets that you buy don't come close to paying the cost of putting this production on. We rely on, on donations and support and private support as well. Um, and uh, we have a number of uh, very important supporters, but we also have an army of smaller supporters, and we would love to have you join that, that group. Um, we've just developed a way for you to support us by using your phone. Um, I'm going to give you a number to text to, and if you text the word debate, then you'll be getting a link that you can then use to make a contribution, and we would greatly appreciate it. The number is 797979. I'll repeat it, 797979, and if you text that word debate, uh, you can help us uh, keep this going and help us growing, which is our goal. Um, I want to let you know about our next debate coming up here on April 6th, um, but first I, want to say, first I want to say a word about Walmart. Um, Walmart was built on the foundation of Sam Walton's strategy, the lowest prices anywhere, anytime. And it worked. Since its start in the 1960s, it's grown to be the world's largest retailer. In the U.S. alone, it employs 1.5 million people in 5,000 stores across the country. But our debate centers on whether Walmart has been good for America. On April 6th, we are debating this motion, Long Live Walmart. I think it's going to be... I think it's going to be fascinating. It's going to be a very, very interesting way to look at, a, uh, a, first of all, not only a business but a cultural phenomenon, one that we are, well, not so much if you're living in Manhattan, but otherwise <laughs> almost anywhere else. Uh, I just think it's a very, very interesting way we've chosen to shed light on an economic question. So we would love to invite you to, have, uh, to join us for that. Later on this spring, we'll be producing debates on whether video games make us smarter. In June, we're going to be in San Francisco doing a debate looking at tech companies and government demands for their customer data. Tickets for all of those are available for our website. Um, and for those of you who can't join our live audience, there are a lot of other ways to catch these debates. Those of you who are watching the live stream right now know that. You can visit our website at iq2us.org also to vote on our debates, to watch them, to listen to our podcasts, a lot more. You can also read on our site the writings of all of these debaters on the topic that you just saw so you can learn more about what they think and how they came to their conclusions. Membership to our site is free, so you can set up an account and start tracking your favorite debates. And you can, you can play along with our game. If you, uh, if The longer you spend and the smarter your comments, the higher your IQ2 score goes on our site. <laughs> and it's fun. Um, I, I got... I got gifted a 200 IQ2 score, and with, it's sort of one of those things I would never get into the college I got into. If I had to apply now, um, I would never have a 200 IQ2 score <laughs> if I didn't just get it right away. Um, you can watch all of our debates on demand on Roku and watch, uh, Apple TV apps um, and um, listen, as I said at the beginning, on public radio stations across the country. All right, so I'm just waiting for the results, which I'm, I'm looking to our producer to... Um, I'm told... The voice that speaks in my ear said 20 more seconds. So don't leave. <laughs> Here they come. I hear the footsteps running up the hallway. Thank you, Claire. Okay. Repeating, the universal basic income is the safety net of the future, is our motion. As I explained, the team whose numbers changed most in the upward direction between the first and the second vote 
will be our winner. In the first vote, 35% agreed with the motion, 20% were against, a very large 45% were undecided. So those are the first results. Again, it's the difference that's going to declare, lead to victory for one team or the other. Let's look at the second vote. In the second vote, the team arguing for the motion, their first vote was 35%. Their second vote was 31%. They lost four percentage points. The team arguing against the motion, their first vote went up from 61%, from 20% to 61%. They pulled up 41 percentage points. The team arguing against the motion, our winner. Congratulations to them. Thank you for me. John Donvan and Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll see you next time. Okay. Thank you, everybody. It's a pleasure.